Our scripture reference, our scripture we'll be reading from today is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Uh, you can read along on the screen or turn to in your Bible. Uh, let's read the word of the Lord. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you who have, to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is already to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they might live in the spirit according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you might open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. How our perspective on suffering should be so different than what it is by default. How you change us. How you redeem the hurts of this life. How Suffering has a refining effect upon us. Lord, may we see it now more clearly as we look at the world around us and see suffering all around. Uh, may we see your plan and intention in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you familiar with the life of Louis Zamperini? Louis Zamperini, anyone? Louis, oh, there's a couple. Louis Zamperini. He, his life was a subject of a best-selling book, uh, a 2010 biography by Laura Hillenbrand uh, called Unbreakable. No, no, Unbreakable. It's Unbroken. Unbroken. Unbreakable is something else. Unbroken. Uh, there was a movie made in uh, 2014, same title, Unbroken. Zamperini was an Italian-American who competed in the 1936 Olympics in, uh, in Nazi Germany. He was a long-distance runner. During World War II, Zamperini became a bombardier in the U.S. Air Force, serving in the Pacific Theater. And on a routine search and rescue mission, his own plane had mechanical failure and crashed into the ocean. Only Zamperini and two other men survived the crash and managed to get into a life raft, uh, and on getting into that life raft, they discovered the raft had no provisions in it at all. No food, no water. On that life raft, Zamperini and one of those, those men set a record that no one else would ever want to break. They survived 47 days on a raft at sea without any provisions. They suffered exposure from the heat of the day and the cold of the night and frequent life-threatening encounters with sharks. Read the book. It's, it is scary. Zamperini said that on one of those nights, one of those clear, 
nights in the Pacific, gazing up at a starry sky, he had the unexpected and overwhelming urge to pour out his heart in prayer. In a moment of intense suffering, Zamperini surprised himself with his own response. He hadn't been a man who prayed. He hadn't prayed to God before, but he prayed now. I wonder, how do you respond to times of suffering? How do you react in times of crisis? When times are hard, when times are lean, when things get difficult, what kind of responses does it bring out of you? Does it bring out of your heart? Well, you might say, for me, suffering brings out different things at different times, but if I'm painfully honest, a lot of the time, my knee-jerk reaction to suffering isn't prayer. It isn't anything good. I become short-tempered with people around me. I am quick to engage in self-pity, pity myself. My imagination rushes and runs to some of the worst outcomes. When in pain, my perspective on life shrinks down to where I can only see myself. My world shrinks down to where it's dominated by this wrong or hurt that's been done to me. If this is where you find yourself today, God has a word to speak into your situation. First Peter has help to offer you. Peter has good news that can change our perspective on our suffering. That ought to change our perspective on our suffering. And that change begins here with the purpose of our suffering. Look at verse 1, the purpose of our suffering. We're continuing our journey through 1 Peter, covering six verses this morning. And I'm, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you one heading for each verse. And, by the way, they do alliterate today. I'm not a slave to alliteration, but I do make an effort every once in a while. They do alliterate today. First one is this. In verse 1, I want you to see the purpose of our suffering. Then in verse 2, we're going to see the product of our suffering. The purpose of our suffering, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with this purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter grounds the purpose of our suffering in this objective reality. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, since God took on flesh like ours that he might suffer for us, since suffering was part of God's mission for Jesus, therefore, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Peter says, let your suffering find its true meaning find its true purpose by connecting it back to Christ and his suffering. Do you see that, verse 1? In other words, don't see your suffering in this life in isolation. Suffering may, you may feel isolated when you suffer, but refuse to see your suffering in isolation. Instead, connect the dots, Peter says. Connect the dots. See your suffering and how it relates to Jesus and his suffering. That's good to say, but how do we do that? How do we do that? How does our suffering relate to Jesus' suffering? How does Jesus' purpose in his suffering give 
meaning to our suffering. Let's think about it. Jesus suffered. Why did he suffer? Jesus suffered in order to redeem, in order to redeem the world. The Bible could not be any clearer about this. Jesus gave himself over to suffer in our place, to redeem us from our sin, and to purify a people for God. At the cross, God turned the greatest suffering imaginable into the greatest good imaginable. Jesus' wounds have been what we needed to be healed, to be healed forever. By his stripes, we have been adopted into God's family. Jesus' suffering on the cross was redemptive suffering. He turned what was bad into something that is good. He turned our bad into something good. He took our bad and turned it into something good. Jesus redeemed our bad. And his suffering also redeems the bad things in our lives, like suffering. Our suffering feels bad. It's, it hurts. It still hurts. But because of Jesus, our suffering isn't pointless. It isn't random. It isn't without good effect. Our suffering has a purpose when we connect it back to Jesus. Again, verse 1. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Connected to Christ... God has many good purposes in the suffering of his people. But today, many good purposes. But today, let's focus on just the one that Peter gives us here at the end of verse 1. Why might God ordain his people, that his people suffer? Verse 1 says, Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does Peter mean? What does he not mean? Clearly, Peter doesn't mean this as a blanket statement covering all human experiences of suffering. We know that suffering can often occasion not less, but more sin and selfishness and abuse in people. Just watch any post-apocalyptic disaster movie and you'll see it. The disaster happens, and very quickly, you see the selfishness, the exploiting of others, the abuse of the weak by the strong. We saw it in the early days of the pandemic, didn't we? There would have been adequate toilet paper for everybody, but for fear and fear of going without and suffering, people bought it selfishly. Instead of curtailing sin, we saw domestic abuse rise. In Europe, it rose by more than a third during those first months of the pandemic. And so often we see that those who suffer abuse, what happens? They go on to abuse others as well. They're creating a cycle of suffering where sin begets more sin and more suffering. In these and in so many other ways, it appears that the opposite of what Peter says is true. Suffering doesn't close the floodgates of sin, but rather it opens the floodgates wider. What do we say to that? I don't think anything of what we just said would be news to Peter. Peter knows this is true. Peter knew that suffering can have a multiplying effect on sin. Instead of shutting it off, it opens it up. 
Peter grew up in a time of foreign occupation and oppression. The Romans were there. And he knew firsthand how suffering occasioned sinful responses, how violence brought out more violence in people, how suffering occasioned not less sin but more sin. Remember, this is the guy, Peter, this is the guy who had gone for that killing blow but only cut off an ear. Peter knows that suffering can bring about sin. Peter knows that for many, suffering will only beget additional sin. But Peter also knows that Jesus has come to break the cycles of abuse and change our old reaction to suffering. Jesus breaks the norm. If the old equation in our lives was suffering plus me equals sin increasing, Peter tells us that there's now a new way to do math. Suffering plus Christ in me equals a refining effect upon me. Suffering plus my natural perspective most often leads to increased sin, self-pity, abuse, and bitterness. But when I replace my natural perspective and see my suffering through a gospel lens, who Jesus is, what he's done, how he suffered for me, then That same suffering now has a sin-killing effect upon me. Sometimes even people who don't have God anywhere on their radar can see the positive impact of their suffering. But suffering's sin-killing effect is only fully realized when we believe the gospel. Verse 1, again, since Christ has suffered In the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Only when we ground our suffering in Jesus' suffering will we begin to see its sin-killing effect. That's the purpose, the purpose of our suffering. Look with me at verse 2 now and see the product. Here's the product of our suffering, the product of our suffering, verse 2. So as... To live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Here's the product. Here's the product that God means for our suffering to produce. A gradual weaning us off of the world. That's what we see in verse 2. No longer acting on our lust or being enslaved by our selfish desires, but instead living for something greater, the will of God, living for the glory of our Redeemer, finding our place in God's great plan. It was the English Puritans who used to say, used to pray, Lord, may I prize the gain of a little godliness as counterbalancing all my losses. You understand that? May I prize the gain of a little godliness as counterbalancing all my losses. In other words, Whatever I have to suffer, whatever I have to lose, just to have my character made a little more like Christ, a little more resembling the joy of heaven, a little less resembling the envy of this world, it's worth it. Whatever I have to suffer, whatever I have to lose, it is worth it. Here is a clear difference. Here's the clear difference that Christ makes. For some... 
Times of suffering shakes them to their core. Suffering makes them question everything. And they feel devastated as their life's true treasures are taken away. Their health, their security, their job, their family. But for others, times of suffering are refocusing times. Times of suffering refocuses them on what's most important. Vision actually becomes clearer. Not cloudy by suffering, but clearer. When they, what they envied and lusted after before begins to lose its hold over them, over their hearts. As they deal with real loss or cancer or relational hurts. The things of this world just kind of grow dim and slip away. Suffering, when it's seen through a gospel lens, focuses you on living for the will of God. And unmask the smallness of all your old desires. Like Jesus in the garden, God puts us in places where we stand on the edge, on the precipice of suffering, and have to say to him, Lord, if there's any way, if it be your will, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet if it be for your ultimate glory and my ultimate good, I'll drink it, trusting in you through this hard time, through this suffering. Suffering has a way of bringing us to the end of ourselves, a way of humbling our self-centered self-sufficiency and making us recognize God and his right to reign over our lives. It makes us realize this, verse 3. Look at verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the, the nations, the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, uh, or as Ethan said, drinking, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The time is past. In verse 3, we see the perspective of the saints. Again, if you're taking notes, here's our third heading, the perspective of the saints. Here is a sign that you are a real Christian, that you're a saint, that you're a real believer. Here's a sign that God really has done a work of grace in your heart. Here's the sign. You look back at the past and say, it's been enough. There has been enough of me living for myself. The time past is sufficient. However clean and tidy your past may appear to others, you look back at it and say, it's been full of selfishness and sin. And it's been enough. I now wish never again to worship at the altars of those false gods. Sin, selfishness. It's been enough. The time past has been more than enough. As a pastor, I'd say that when you see the past that way, it is proof that God is at work in your heart. But if... On the other hand, you were to examine your life and say, you know, I've done pretty well. I still have time yet to sow my wild oats. I still have time to chase after the things in verse 3. If that's you, I'd wonder 
I'd wonder about the genuineness of your heart and your encounter with Christ. A heart that has truly encountered the purity of Jesus can only look back in agreement with verse 3. The time past has been more than sufficient for my self-rule, my self-ruled life. What I most want now is to live under the good rule of King Jesus. The past has been, selfishness has been full of sin. I want the future to be full of Christ. Church, let me tell you, I'm still looking at the past this way. I'm looking at the past year this way, at the past week this way. The past is more than sufficient to contain all my self-destructive choices in life. But, covered in the forgiveness of Christ, I now look forward in hope of joyful service to my Savior. That's the perspective of the saints. The past has been sufficient for sin, and the future is for service to Christ. You look forward knowing that seasons of suffering are still yet to come, knowing there will be a price to pay for following Jesus. Because, verse 4, in all this, they, your former friends, your old friends, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. They speak evil of you. They make fun of you. We've seen the perspective of the saints in verse 3. I want you to see in verse 4 the persecution of the saints. Persecution of the saints. Someone, somewhere, once said this. Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Right? Jesus promised his disciples those three things. They would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. That's true. In most times and places in history, there has been a social cost to pay for shifting your life's allegiance to Jesus. The people Peter was writing to had to pay this price in the ancient Roman world, where the majority culture pushed for all kinds of things that were contrary to Christ. There was the accepted abuse of slaves, both in the home and in the gladiator arena. The abuse of women, both in domestic abuse and as part of religious and secular life. There was the abuse of children in ways that we don't even think about. The abuse of animals for sports, for entertainment. All these things Christians gradually changed, setting new social norms that we still feel the fruit of today. But to stand against those things in the beginning, especially after you were part of the culture that bought into them for so long, to stand against those things in the beginning meant becoming a target of your old friends to heap abuse upon you. In one sense, this is still true of real Christians in every age. Even at the height of Christendom in the West, believers still have targets painted on their backs for addressing socially acceptable abuses and sins and societal injustices. We still have a target for that. So while it's true to some extent in every age, Peter's words may feel to you like they're becoming more true, 
truer in our day. We are perhaps more likely to have abuse heaped on us for our allegiance to Jesus than the previous generation did. But guess what? That's okay. That's okay. We'll make it. You'll make it. It's really an honor in the Bible to suffer shame for Christ, to suffer shame for his name. We join with our brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the world today who feel and daily live out these words of Peter, verse 5. And all these things, they're surprised, they don't run with you, you don't run with them, and they malign you. But, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Your old friends say, come on, don't think that way. Come on, join us like you used to. These things don't matter that you're believing now. They don't matter. Peter says, no, they do matter. They malign you, but, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We find in verse 5 our fifth heading, and it's this, the the price of self-centeredness. The price of self-centeredness. Following Christ has a price. But following self also has a price to pay. Look at verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says, don't give in today because a day of reckoning is coming for all. Don't go back and don't give in because there will be a price to pay for such self-centered choices. There will be a price to pay for self-centered living. A me-first life may benefit you for a while, for a time, but a day of judgment is coming. A day when all will be exposed, including the selfish motives of the heart. So, Peter says, persevere. Persevere, Christian, even if that day feels a long way off. Because even if your former friends, who are now your slanderers, even if your slanderers live another 70 years, prospering while abusing your good name, guess what, Peter says? God will ultimately right every wrong. That's what judgment is all about. God will one day climatically deal with all evil, And every wrong ever done forever. So, hang in there. Don't grow weary of doing good. Because an eternal recompense is coming. Let's read verse 6 and see our sixth and final heading. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, They may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The heading for verse 6 is this. The perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. On the first reading, you may not see it. (laughs) On the first reading, this verse looks pretty difficult, actually. You could read this verse uh, as an offer of the gospel to people who are already physically dead. Anybody's first reading that comes to mind? The gospel has been preached to those who are dead. Like Peter is speaking of a second chance to respond to the gospel after death. 
as much as some people might find that personally appealing, there is one big theological problem with reading verse 6 that way. What is it? Nowhere else in Scripture is that idea taught. Nowhere else. Nowhere else in Scripture is it taught that the dead get the gospel again and and a second time to respond to it. If something is important for us to believe, you can bet God has said it to to us more than once in the Bible, right? Multiple times. How many times are we told what Jesus did and why he did it? Multiple times. Whatever is important to believe, God has spoken it to us more than once in the Scripture. That's why it is never wise to craft some big doctrine off of just one verse. It's never smart to build a big doctrine off of just one one scripture, especially when the verse's wording is a bit difficult, like this one. That's one of the first principles of being a good theologian. And you also don't embrace an interpretation for a difficult passage that contradicts a clearer passage, especially when that clearer passage is the verse right before it. Uh, So look again at verse 5. Look at what verse 5 is saying. Uh, Verse 5 is saying that the These old friends, they heap abuse upon you, but don't give in to the pressure because they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't give in. Why? Because judgment is coming. That's the point of verse 5. Now, you would expect verse 6 to be a continuation of that thought, not a big contradiction of that thought. But a contradiction is what you have if you take verse 6 to be a post-mortem offer of the gospel to those rejecting it during their lives. Verse 5, don't give in because judgment is coming for those who malign you. Verse 6, in which the dead won't actually be judged because they're given a second chance. That is not the flow of thought here. Do you see how that interpretation breaks the flow of thought and undermines what Peter has just said? Hopefully you see it. But then the question comes, okay, if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? What's an interpretation that maintains Peter's flow of thought and argument? There's probably more than one, but here's the one I favor. This interpretation takes verse 6 as a continuation of Peter's encouragement to stand firm in verse 5. Here Peter is giving us another reason why We should persevere even when our former friends persecute us. It reads verse 6 this way. For this reason the gospel has been preached even to those of you who are dead. That though they are judged by others in the flesh as men, they might live in the spirit according to God. You you see the difference there? The, The death here is a spiritual one, not a physical one. And the judgment here is a misjudgment, the the maligning, the misjudging of others. If this is Peter's true flow of thought, then here's the encouragement. People will abuse you in this life, including your former friends. People will misjudge you in this life, including some of the people who were once closest to you. But God will do what is right. God will vindicate you in the end. For the saints who believe the gospel, even if people misjudge them all their lives to the point of death, God will recompense a life misjudged with a life everlasting, with no condemnation. That's a great cause to hope and to persevere. 
to not grow weary of doing good. Believing what Peter says here will help us persevere through times of suffering as we persevere in believing the precious gospel preached to us. So, how will we respond when suffering comes? How will we respond to suffering? Remember Louis Zamperini? His suffering didn't end that night on the raft when he first poured out his heart to God in prayer. And it didn't end after the 47 days adrift at sea. He was picked up not by the Americans, not by anyone friendly, but by the Japanese, the enemy. The Japanese took him as a prisoner of war, and his imprisonment began another intense time of suffering. One specific Japanese guard really had it out for him, and he suffered some of the most inhumane treatment imaginable. But Louis survived until the end of the war. He made it back. He made it home. But as you can imagine, PTSD, post-traumatic stress, he was dealing with it big time. Nightmares all the time. Alcoholism. Uh, His marriage falling apart. He began pushing family away. He began obsessing about revenge, planning a trip to go back to Japan, find some of those guards, and get his own revenge. But in the midst of all these problems, his wife heard and believed the gospel and brought him along to a Billy Graham crusade in California. And Zamperini, as Billy Graham preached, he remembered, long forgotten, he remembered that night on the raft and the prayers he prayed then. And he believed. He believed the gospel and was radically changed. He said, the nightmares ended that night. And never came again. Now, I don't normally expect believing the gospel to cure all your PTSD symptoms overnight. But for Louis Zamperini, it did. He did go back to Japan. And he met with all the former prison guards that he could find. And it wasn't for revenge. It was to testify of the God who loved him. Testify of God's love for them. A love that embraces those who were enemies. A love that purchased forgiveness for the unforgivable. What made all the difference for Louis Zamperini in processing the horrible suffering he went through is what Peter says here. Seeing his suffering through Christ's suffering. Seeing his pain through a gospel lens. May God grant us eyes of faith to see all of our suffering the same way Louis Zamperini did. Let's pray. Father, in many ways we are a hurting people this morning. Into each life suffering will come. It has come. It will come again. Lord, may the good news of a God who comes, who bears our flesh, who suffers for us in our place, may we, and redeems our suffering, may we begin again to see 
all of our suffering through Christ's suffering. See all of our pain through the lens of the gospel. And may it be something that changes us completely from the inside out. May we experience this transformation that makes the bad things of life, the suffering, the hardships, the trials, into things that we rejoice in our suffering. Uh, We count it all joy when we encounter various trials. May the gospel turn life upon its head for us, that we might see it as it really is. May our hard things, may our pain have a refining, sin-killing effect upon our lives as we connect it to Jesus. Lord, may this be the heart response of all the saints here. And if there's anyone here who is not yet believing in this Christ, who transforms suffering so completely, may this be the day that they give their heart to Jesus and find the help they've always looked for in their pain. Find the one who redeems every wrong and who will bring us safely home to to life and peace and joy in the end. Uh, May every heart here embrace this Christ. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.